Good afternoon, Memorial Baptist friends and family, and welcome back to our midweek edition of our podcast for June 3rd, 2020. I hope everyone had a very blessed Lord's Day this past Pentecost Sunday. You know, Pentecost Sunday allows us to live transformed lives because of the Holy Spirit's power. And it also allows us to tell the truth about Jesus, about God, and about people. The Holy Spirit's presence in our lives allows us to proclaim the excellencies of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I am so looking forward to our meeting again at Memorial for Worship in our worship center this Sunday, June 7th at 10.45 a.m. We will be practicing distancing strategies even as we congregate for corporate worship. So I hope to see you there. It's going to be a great day. You know, in light of all the turmoil in our country today, I want to remind us all of what Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse 32. He said, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Let's be intentional about our acts of kindness. Today, more than ever, we need to share the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, the... The best place for unfiltered honesty is in our prayers to God, you know, like David did in the Psalms. As a leader, our words are powerful, and they resonate with people, and they carry weight. Words can speak life, and hopefully they will inspire others and lead to action, words that are edifying, building up the oneness within the body of Christ. Unfortunately, many think that unity means sameness. But that is not true. Unity is not uniformity. Instead, unity can be defined as any group of people who are characterized by a shared purpose, vision, or direction. It's not about being the exact same, but about advancing toward the same goal. Think about a football team. There are different positions on the field, and each position has different skill sets, roles, and responsibilities. But all the players on the team march toward the same end zone because their goal is the same. What I would like for you to see is that race has always been a part of God's plan, But God's plan also includes a way to create unity among different people groups. That plan's epicenter is Jesus Christ. Through Christ, racially divided groups get reconciled into one body, the church. The church is the place where all distinctions should no longer cause any divisions because of our unity in Christ. Our common goal is advancing God's kingdom through sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, when believers from every tribe, every nation, and people group come together and operate in biblical unity, we will no longer be divided or conquered. We will actually be victorious. You know, a perfect example of unity is the Holy Trinity, three in one. All God, yet uniquely different. Father, Son, 
Holy Spirit, all using their unique differences yet remaining in unity. You know, thus far I have not said much about what is going on right now in our nation for many reasons. Because I don't know what to say. I didn't know how to say it. Because I didn't want to deal with the response of others about what I spoke. I do not believe that any of these are good reasons for remaining silent. I am listening. I am praying. I want to take some practical steps. I need to ask God how He wants me to be involved. My voice needs to be heard not as if I had any answers, but in solidarity with other image bearers of Christ and fighting for them to be seen and to get justice. You know, Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. I do feel, excuse me, I do feel compelled to say something using the platform and ability that God has given me. My thoughts are still a little too scattered to be eloquent. But understand that I'm speaking from a place of peace, a place of love right now. I'm not fired up, driven by emotion, like so many rants and unhelpful evaluations concerning the riots and crises that are going on in our nation. You know, I've had the honor of getting to love and to shepherd some great law enforcement officers. I believe in law and order. I believe it to be biblical and God's will that people follow and obey the laws set before us by government so that we can live our life in a peaceful and God-honoring manner. I've had a great many men who've served as police officers, who have mentored me and been involved in my life over the years. I'm thankful for people in my life like my own brother Tom, who served as a police chief for very many years. Other people like Elmer Wolf, a state trooper, Jared Adams, Ben Brooks, Ross Allen, Gary Meyer, and Anthony Morehouse. All outstanding law enforcement men with stellar records whom, I'm, whom I've always admired and looked up to. If I've left someone out, I apologize because your greatness dwarfs my memory. I believe that what happened to George Floyd should not have happened. It was wrong, and it was handled wrong. The defacing of our national symbols of freedom, the destruction and burning of personal and private property in our cities is also wrong. I would suggest that if George Floyd was still alive, our cities would not be burning. However, the hatred and violence toward all police personnel is not helpful either. My point is is that we cannot lump a majority of great apples in with a few bad apples and call them all bad. But I will tell you this. 
If I'm shopping for produce in Walmart or HEB and I see a bag of apples and I notice four apples in the bag that have rotten soft spots on them, I'm not going to buy that bag of apples and neither would you. For this reason, I'm beginning to understand why some people don't trust the police. They have seen a few of the bad apples. Listen, none of us want to be lumped together and judged by others according to the actions of a few bottom feeders who don't share our own high standards of justice, integrity, and accountability. The great men and women who do embrace high standards for themselves and their fellow officers don't deserve that injustice either. Law enforcement personnel all over this nation need our understanding, they need our patience, they need our love and support always, but especially during these trying times. Speaking the truth in love, in our nation currently, we are more focused on the carnage than on the reason for the protests. Granted, I don't pretend to understand everything that is going on. You know, I, I believe that Tyler Huckabee's article in Relevant Magazine sheds some light on the context of these tragic events that are devastating to our country. This is what he says. Black lives matter. They matter to God, so they should matter to me. The problem with saying that all lives matter is not that that statement isn't true, because it is, but it also isn't helpful. It's an attempt to erase an actual crisis under the guise of being fair. And by continuing to use all lives matter to drown out the cry of black lives matter, the real problems the movement is trying to address are being ignored. All lives matter is useless. It's destructive. It's hurtful. We need to stop saying it. Listen carefully. The thing is, When people say black lives matter, they are acknowledging an important context that involves several centuries of slavery, civil rights, mass incarceration, and brutality. It's specifically highlighting the value of black lives because historically in this country, That has often ignored that value. Saying all lives matter ignores that context. Having said this, I'll take a quote from my brother in Christ, Kevin Cornelius. He says, brothers and sisters, it is not okay for the church to be silent on this. As a leader in the church, it's not okay for me to be silent. As a believer, I must not be silent. And as a father, I cannot be silent. Because my children are watching to see 
if I will follow Jesus on this. I ask if you would just join me in prayer and please pray with me as I pray. Almighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you for the giving of life to us. Father, we are grieved over the, the, the circumstances, the crisis that is going on in our nation. Father, we are grieved over the division in our nation. Father, I ask that you would forgive me because I am a sinner and I live among sinful people. I pray, Father, that you would bring peace and calm to the storm that is going on in our nation. I pray, Father, that you would bring about unity, that you would bring about understanding, that as believers we would rise to the occasion and not um, digress into um, rants and unhelpful comments, just further inciting violence and hatred among people. Father, that you would bring about this unity by the blood of Jesus Christ, that because in his body there are no divisions. Father, that we are all equal. Father, that you have created us in that way, that we are all created by you. And Father, that we all bear your image. Father, I pray that you would guide us as we seek unity within the body, that you would help us as we worship you. Father, that you would inhabit the praises of your people. I pray that in these times of of darkness and chaos, in these times of sickness, Father, and and, um, just all of the the protesting and rioting that's going on, that that you would help us as believers to make sense, to, to listen, to hear, Father, to be peacemakers in this time. Father, that you would use us to share the gospel. Father, that you would use us to share your greater plan for humanity. That as we love Jesus Christ, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. Father, that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength that we would love others as we love ourselves, and that we would serve the world, Father, knowing that we have something to offer them. Father, I pray that you would drive us out of our homes and into the streets. Father, that you would show us how to love you better, that you would show us how to love others better. And Father, that you would show us how to serve better in our world today. Father, I pray for a great repentance to fall upon the body of of Christ. God, that you would wash us, Lord Jesus, with your blood, that we would be your spotless bride without blemish, made up of people from every tribe, every nation, every group. Father, coming and worshiping you and loving you more than anything, Loving you, Father. Father, we are thankful to be a part of Memorial Baptist Church. And Father, you have planted us in a great church. So I pray, Father, that 
that that unity would be something that the world does not understand, but that they definitely see exhibited by the body of Christ. Lord, I pray for your Shekinah glory just to rest and abide upon your church during these tumultuous times. Father, may we be a beacon of love, of unity, of peace, of joy. And may all of the fruit of the Spirit just be manifested in our lives for your glory, for your honor. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's switch gears now and jump back into our study of the Holy Bible. Um, We're going to be in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. And I want to just go ahead and read those if I might, and then we'll talk about them. Um, God's Word says this. It says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the, of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame, for ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorn and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But you, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You know, if the author has challenged his readers prior to this to to move on to meat, it didn't take him long to introduce them to steak, and I want to say it's even a tough steak. Here's a serving of meat that will keep them, and I want to say us, chewing for some time. We should not find it unusual that there are difficult texts in the Bible. You know, Peter, who was no stranger to difficult texts, he observed that Paul provides us with some as well. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 through 18, Peter writes this, he said, Therefore, beloved, since you look at Excuse me. Since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. 
and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother beloved, excuse me, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are are some things hard to understand, which the taught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. See, these difficult texts not only pose us with questions in interpreting and applying them, but also provide the opportunity for false teachers to twist and distort them so that they become proof texts for all sorts of error. So we have to exercise not only great diligence, but also great caution when we seek to interpret, uh, I want to say this text in Hebrew is clearly one of those hard-to-understand texts. So as I began, I'm going to borrow from a sermon by John Piper, in which he seeks to explain why God inspired hard texts. And then I'm going to summarize some of the more popular interpretations of our text by evangelical scholars. Having done this, I'm going to draw some preliminary conclusions, and then I'm going to let you all chew on it. I mean, you can just chew on it until you're finished chewing on it. But, um, you know, the text for John Piper's lesson was not our text in Hebrews. His lesson was given from Romans 3, 1 through 8. Anyway, what we find in this sermon applies also to the hard texts that we find in the book of Hebrews. And Piper, he cites four reasons why God inspired the hard texts. The first one is desperation. Hard texts force us to recognize our inability to grasp them. And so we see our need to depend upon the Holy Spirit to enable us to understand God's Word. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, The unbeliever does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, the second thing, the first one's desperation. The second one's supplication. The hard text brings us to our knees, asking God to help us understand them. You know, Psalm 25, 5 says, Guide me into your truth and teach me, for you are the God who delivers me. On you I rely all day long. And then in Psalm 119, 18, Open my eyes so that I can truly see the marvelous things in your law. I mean, there's desperation. It, it forces us to recognize our inability to understand God's Word and call out to the Holy Spirit. But then supplication, uh, asking God to help us understand them. And then thirdly, uh, consideration. While the Holy Spirit illuminates the Scriptures, we must also exert ourselves to understand them. The hard texts force us to think, you know, pondering the words until the meaning comes clear to us. In 2 Timothy 2.7 says, Think about what I am saying, and the Lord will give you understanding of all of this. 
I would say, fourthly, education. Those who have struggled with hard texts can then instruct others so that they can also help those who seek to understand what God is teaching. This principle is seen in 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul writes to Timothy and he says, And entrust what you have heard me say in the presence of many others uh, uh, as witnesses to faithful people who will be competent to teach others as well. In addition to these four reasons why God inspired hard text, I'm going to add a couple more. Uh, One is humility. The hard texts keep us from becoming arrogant about our knowledge of Scripture. The hard texts humble us, uh, which is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 25, 9 says, May he show the humble what is right. May he teach the humble his way. Proverbs eleven two 2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. And lastly, I'd say hard work. I mean, God did not scatter his pearls for us to pick them up as though we were picking wild strawberries out in the woods. I mean, God buries his secrets deep so that we have to dig for them. It's those who are willing to work hard who will get the meaning of the hard texts. You know, Proverbs 2, 1 through 8, says, My child, if you receive my words and store up my commands within you by making your ear attentive to wisdom and by turning your heart to understanding. Indeed, if you call out for discernment, raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand how the fear, how to fear the Lord and you will discover knowledge about God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up effective counsel for the upright. It is like a shield for those who live with integrity to guard the paths of the righteous and to protect the way of his pious ones. See, all that is to say that the hard hard texts serve to produce some very good things in our lives. I mean, this is a difficult passage of Scripture. It's difficult for several reasons, and I I list four of those for you today. I want to say first that, you know, respected Protestant interpreters of Scripture have disagreed on the, the meaning of this passage. I mean, if you, for instance, grew up in a Methodist home or under Methodist preaching or even a Wesleyan Armenian background, this passage was no doubt preached and appealed to as a proof of the doctrine that Christians are able to fall away from grace. That is, that one can truly be a believer in Christ and yet lose their salvation, then at some point later in time regain that salvation and then yet again lose it again. That is why a Calvinist might say in jest that the official flower of the Armenian is the daisy. The forget-me-not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And you move around the petals waiting to see how it's going to end up. And some have used this passage in that way. On the other hand, some work very hard to explain away the force of this passage. 
I mean, you might have heard some ministers, and I did just a couple of weeks ago, say something like this. If you've made a profession of faith, it doesn't matter how bad you live, how much you reject the laws of Christ or the ways of God, you are forever going to be united with God and you will go to heaven. And you might hear something like this. If you're too sinful, the Lord may just take you home early. It may be that if you're wicked enough, the Lord may just have to take you home to heaven early. And I thought, what a picture of heaven. As a picture for wickedness on earth being taken home to heaven? Why, if that were the way to get to heaven, I would suggest that there would be other more simple ways to pursue in the church, you know, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if, if that's all it takes, that you would be transported to the halls of glory immediately, just, well, engage in the grossest sin and willful disobedience then. I mean, imagine the impact that would have on the church. So you have widely varying interpretations of this passage. That's one of the reasons it's a difficult passage. Second, let me say simply that this passage says things that are hard to understand. I mean, we, just as a case in point, I mean, when we look at the various words and phrases used in verses 4 and 5, they're difficult to understand. The greatest and most faithful interpreters wrestle with the meaning of these phrases. Third, however, The fact of the matter is this passage says some things that are hard to swallow. Sometimes it's hard to grasp a passage that's hard to swallow, not because of things in it that are difficult to understand, but because of the things in it that are crystal clear. You know, it's not the things that I don't understand from Scripture that keep me up at night. It's the parts that I do understand. (laughs) You know, and those things that are crystal clear and yet hard to swallow sometimes We attempt to explain them away in our own experience. And that makes the passage harder to take in. And I would say also, this passage forces us to do hard work of the hard work of self-examination. This passage cannot be studied with detachment. This passage forces us to think about our ultimate commitments to the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, that's exactly what the author intended it to do. So I invite you this afternoon to put in some hard work for a few minutes. This is God's Word. It's good for our souls. And so we should beware of trying, beware of trying to downplay the hard things in this passage and open ourselves up to learning what it is the Lord would have us learn from it. There are two main ideas that I want you to see in this passage. First one is we must listen to God's warnings against apostasy. We must listen to God's warnings against apostasy. Now, the first part of this I want you to see in verses 4 through 8. We see a stout warning here delivered about the danger of someone who professes to be a believer who does not show the fruit of commitment to Christ. Here we learn that Christians must listen to God's warnings against apostasy. Note how the author of Hebrews in this passage is issuing a excuse me a very clear warning about apostasy. Now apostasy means falling away from the faith. It means falling away from or deserting our profession of faith in Christ. Let me say some things by way of qualification. When we use at least in our congregation 
the term apostasy, I do not mean that a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is capable of losing his or her salvation. But since the scripture uses this term falling away, there has to be substantive content to it. This isn't just a phantom warning. So what is he talking about? He's talking about someone who has has made what looks to be a credible outward profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and yet at some point down the line has renounced it and has turned his back on Christ. This is a person who has outwardly professed Christ. His profession looks very similar, if not identical, to the profession of other true believers in the congregation, and yet at some point he turns his back on Christ. And so this Of course, this warning reminds us that there is such a thing as a false profession. There is such a thing as claiming to be a believer and yet not being a believer. So it's vital for us to recognize that that distinction and recognize that that requires of us self-examination. What is it that Peter tells us in uh, 2 Peter 1... Uh, verse 10 and 11. He says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. See, that we are to make our calling and salvation sure. This is exactly what the Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is calling us to do here. In fact, the book of 2 Peter has many similar warnings to the book of Hebrews and can help us understand more clearly what the author of Hebrews is saying here. So let me say it one more time. Apostasy does not mean a true believer can fall away from God. I believe we are eternally secure, but it does mean that it is possible for a person to make a false profession and that false profession can be found out to be a false profession by that person's, uh, I want to say, repudiation or falling away or apostasy from Christ. See, a classic example of this is found in John's description of those who were part of the congregation and yet departed in John, first, excuse me, first John 2, uh, verse 18 and 19. John says this, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. You hear what John's saying there? A group has left the congregation. They have renounced their profession of faith in Christ. They have followed after, maybe in his case, some sort of a Gnostic heresy. And he says to them, we know that they apostatize, but by their apostatizing, we learn that they never really were of us. And how did we know that they were never really of us? Because they left. 
because they renounced their profession. They, their actions showed us that they were not, that there actually was no spiritual reality in them from the beginning. It was not that they started out just like us in a state of grace and lost that state of grace. It was that they only appeared to have that state of grace at first. But by their rejection of Christ, they had shown themselves to be false believers. Let me say one more thing before we we look at the interior parts of this text. Sometimes Christians with depressive and melancholy temperaments tend to fixate on passages and doctrines like this. They will lock in on the unpardonable sin. They will lock in on falling away from the faith. They will lock in on the Antichrist. So we must be careful as we come to passages like this, knowing that there will be some Christians with a natural proclivity to lock in on this and think that they have committed the unpardonable sin, to think that they have truly fallen away, when in fact there are many marks of grace in their own lives. There are people who have a tendency to lock in on these things. And so pastorally speaking, let me just remind you of Martin Lloyd-Jones, his distinction between self-examination and introspection. Lloyd-Jones had a has a wonderful book published about 20 years ago. It's called Spiritual Depression. And in that book, one of the things he says is that all Christians are called to self-examination, but no Christian is called to introspection. The distinction is basically this. Self-examination opens up the heart and looks inside and asks the Lord to look with you in order that you can take spiritual inventory of what the Lord is doing in your life. Self-examination does not go on forever. Self-examination opens the heart, looks at it, closes it back up, and looks into the face of Christ because anyone who stares in there long enough is going to be depressed. And if you're honest, you're going to be depressed. So if your focus is in there and not on Him and on His face and on the mirror of His promises, I promise you, you will be a depressed Christian. If you have any reality about it at all. And so Lloyd Jones warns us not to become introspective, but to be bold in our self examination, dependent on the Spirit as we examine ourselves from time to time, but not to fixate on our inward state without looking back to Christ and to His grace. Now, what is the description of these people who fall away? Look at verse 4 and 5. I submit this is frightening stuff. We are told at least five things about these people in verses 4 and 5. First, they are enlightened. Second, they have tasted of the heavenly gift. Third, they are partakers of the Holy Spirit. Fourth, they in verse 5, they have tasted of the good word of God. And fifth, they have tasted of the power of the age to come. Now, what do these phrases mean? What do each of them mean? And I mean, they're difficult, but let me take a stab at it. So many ancient interpreters uh, have viewed the phrase enlightened to be a reference to baptism. And because in many of the ancient formulations of baptism, the language of enlightenment was tied to the terms of the sacrament of baptism. But clearly this phrase is better understood by Paul's words in Ephesians 5 verses 8 and 11, when he talks about our transformation from darkness to light as enlightenment, connected with regeneration. 
I mean, that's basically what he is, uh, you know, as believers, we, we are transformed from darkness to light. And so um, these, these uh, you know, who have, have uh, let me get back to Hebrews 6 here, who have, uh, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, okay, he talks about that. And, and he says, that, he also talks about has tasted of the heavenly gift. Again, some interpreters because of the language tasted, applied that to mean the Lord's Supper. Uh, these are people who have taken the Lord's Supper. But again, this passage is more likely explained by passages from the Psalms or even 1 Peter 2, 3, and the idea of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good and the experience of, of, of experiencing heavenly blessings. Notice again in verse 4, he says, partakers of the Holy Spirit. This may be referring to the ordinary and to the extraordinary graces of the Holy Spirit that Paul reminds us of in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, Though I speak with the, the tongues of men and of angels, and yet have not excuse me, and have yet have not love, I am nothing. See the possibility he presents there of someone being able to speak with tongues and yet being spiritually lost. Again, in verse 5, to taste the word, the good word of God, indicates a real and personal experience of the riches of the words of, God, of the word of God. And it, it goes on to say, tasted of the powers of the age to come, maybe referring to the signs and wonders and the miracles of the, of the kingdom age. Two examples I want to give you of this, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Remember, the author is saying here, all of these all of this of people endangered of falling away. He's saying all of this about those that are in danger of falling away. He says, think of Saul in the Old Testament. There was a proverb in Israel, is Saul among the prophets? He prophesied, and yet we know that the Spirit was taken away from Saul. He had extraordinary graces of the Holy Spirit, but he did not have the saving graces of the Holy Spirit. John Owen says this, It is a fearful thing to realize that a person may experience the extraordinary operations of the Holy Spirit and yet not experience the saving operations of the Holy Spirit. Think again to Jesus' words in the Gospels as He speaks to His disciples and He says that at the last day there will be some say to Him, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? What does Jesus respond to that? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. Notice what Jesus said, does not say to them. He does not say, no, you didn't prophesy in my name. He says, you never knew me. There's no denial of the extraordinary activity. There is a denial of having a saving knowledge of him. See, if that doesn't frighten you, I don't know of anything that will. He is clearly intimating here that these believers may well have participated in seeing these miraculous apostolic gifts that were being manifested in their midst, and yet they have no saving commitment and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean by falling away? Departing from their profession of Christ, abandoning the divine rule and the way of Christ, rejecting Christ. That's what he means in verse 6 when he says, 
And he speaks about falling away. And, and folks, I, I know this is going to go long, but just bear with me if you will. And what is the result of that falling away? A spiritual hardening that leads to a permanent soul deadness. Notice what he says. He says it is impossible that their repentance can be renewed. You know, the gospel was preached to these Jews by the apostles. In chapter 2, it said that they saw the signs, the wonders, the miracles, the gifts of the Spirit, all the manifestation that God could give came their way. All the information God could give came their way. They had it all. They accepted it intellectually. They entered the sphere of the new covenant manifestation. Now, anybody who had all of that and turned around and walked away and went back to, into Judaism was lost because there's no other alternative. You either go on to a full knowledge in Christ or you turn around and go back to what you had before and you're lost forever. Folks, that's a classic definition of apostate. And boy, it's a heavy thing because it also says it is impossible. Now, some translators have translated impossible with the word difficult. But listen, you can't translate that with the word difficult. That word means impossible. You hear people say, well, of course, we don't really mean impossible, just very, very hard, very difficult. Like the little sign that says, the difficult we do immediately, the impossible takes a little longer. No, no. I want to show you this word in the word. Chapter 6, verse 18. You know, this is great. It's talking about God. That by two immutable things in which it was difficult for God to lie. Same word. No, it's not difficult. It's impossible for God to lie. You're not convinced? Chapter 10, verse 4. For it is difficult for the, the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. No, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's not difficult. It's impossible. Chapter 11, verse 6. You're still not convinced? But without faith, it is difficult to please Him. No, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, you want to preach a good sermon? Preach a sermon on the four things that are impossible with God. There they are. And one of them is one who falls away from full revelation. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. So what I'm saying, friends, is it's very serious for our consideration. When you come all the way up, and you know all the facts about Christ and you've been sitting in church and you've been taking it in and you're growing a little bit less excited, a little bit sluggish, a little bit more spiritually indifferent, you're in danger of falling away. And beloved, it is then impossible for you to be saved. That's what the Word of God says. You know, it's an interesting thing that when they want to immunize you to a disease, they give you a little bit of it. Did you know that? That's what a vaccination is. If you want to be vaccinated against Christianity or immunized against it, just get a little bit of it and do nothing about it. And that's the problem with so many people. 
They've had a Christian vaccination so that they're insensitive to it. I say to you, if you haven't received Jesus Christ and you're coming constantly and you're not really considering coming to Christ, better get out of there lest you become so hard you never are able to come. See, recognize the attitude that the author is getting at here. He's speaking to Jewish Christians who were considering repudiating, renouncing Christ and going back to Judaism. They cannot go back to Judaism without saying, in effect, either explicitly or implicitly, that they do not need Christ for salvation and fellowship with God. See, that is what they must say. For them to leave the fold of the Christian church and go back to their Judaism, they must say either explicitly or implicitly, I do not need Christ in order to have fellowship with God and eternal salvation. And that is something that the Heavenly Father is not willing to hear. He will not. Excuse me. He will have no one say to Him, Father, You don't need to crucify your own son for my salvation. I don't need that. I can get along without that perfectly fine. Thank you. The Father will not hear that. And so the author is warning these people, and notice what he says to them. They crucify to themselves the Son of God, and they put him to open shame. How? Because they reject his necessity. They reject the whole sufficiency of his work and they say, no, there's another way to God other than through the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what the evidence is of their apostasy. The evidence of this spiritual apostasy. It's made clear in verses 7 and 8. It's spiritual fruitlessness. That's the evidence and proof that they have fallen away. They do not bear fruit. Interesting, isn't it? In verse 4 and 5, when we look at those preconditions of those who have fallen away, not one of those preconditions is a fruit. Oh, they all speak of experiences or gifts, but not fruit. Does that not remind us that it's so important for us to, uh, to seek signs of spiritual, excuse me, spiritual maturity, not gifts of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit? You see, not all of us are going to be equally gifted, and it's frighteningly possible to mistake gifting for fruit. But what we must seek is the fruit, the product of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the work of grace in our hearts, producing love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and those glorious characteristics of a believer listed for us in the New Testament. We ought to be aiming for the fruit of the Spirit. We ought to be encouraged, not just when we see a gifted belief, but when we see a fruitful belief. And of course, this passage asks us to self-examinate. Are we resting solely in Christ? Are we longing to know Him better? Are we glorifying Him in our lives? What is the fruit of our experience? Folks, this is a solemn warning. Secondly, I would say we must also listen to God's words of comfort. Before we close today, let me just mention one thing. As you look at verses 12, 9 through 12, I want you to concentrate especially on these words. 
Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. See, the author of Hebrews is administering this stern warning in the hope that they will keep someone from crossing a line from which they will never return. Basically, in this passage, it is saying, you cannot trifle with Christ. You cannot say, well, I've accepted Christ, and then, well, I'm not so sure. The writer is warning believers not to cross that line into trifling with Christ, but is convinced and has good hope for them with regard to their salvation. The ground of this hope is that God is incapable of misjudging the heart and doing an injustice when it comes to salvation. But the writer is also hopeful because people have ministered well to one another. Their love is evident, and because of their love, the writer has hope that the reason that they love one another is that they love God, and His love has been shed abroad into their hearts. The writer then woos them by that compliment away from defecting from Christ and back into the arms of Jesus. You know, now we, we've raised more questions than we've answered today. But folks, let's look to Him for wisdom and understanding as we continue to study in the book of Hebrews. And now just a couple of brief applications. Folks, it is dangerous to traffic in Christian matters, but to reject or disobey the light that God has graciously given to us. See, one reason that the author piles up these many terms that sound as if these apostates were converted is to warn us about how far we can go into matters of the faith and yet still not be genuinely converted. Secondly, it is dangerous to profess faith in Christ, but to have no evidence of fruit in your life. Oh, God is raining His blessings all around, but each of us needs to ask, am I bringing forth thorns and thistles or fruit to God? Am I progressively denying the needs and deeds of the flesh and growing in the grace and the fruit of the Spirit? Thirdly, I would say it is dangerous not to practice frequent repentance. Repentance isn't a one-time thing that you do at conversion and then move on. Nor is it simply a change of mind, not of behavior. Turning from sin ought to be a chief identifying mark of the believer. If you're in God's words daily, if you're in His word daily, it confronts you with ways that you are not pleasing to God. And repentance is the proper response. Lastly, I would say it is dangerous not to worry about this warning if your heart is calloused or to worry excessively about it if your heart is tender. I mean, we can, it's a warning that believers are to grow up in their faith It's a warning to those who think they are believers but are not, not to fall away into eternal judgment. True believers do not go back to their old way of life, and true believers persevere in faith and obedience. In other words, there is only one way for those who have truly believed in Christ as Savior and Lord to move ahead in faith and obedience, even in the face 
of trials and persecution. To give up the Christ who sacrificed himself on the cross and to go back to the pleasures of this evil world or to the empty shell of religion is extremely dangerous and possibly spiritually fatal. The other extreme is if your heart is tender toward God and you are striving daily against sin and you should be concerned about this warning, but not excessively concerned. Keep walking with the Lord and He will bring you safely into His heavenly kingdom. Whew! There's a lot there. But in wrapping this up, I just want to thank you so much for tuning in. Next week, we will continue in our studies of Hebrews chapter 6. Until then, stay safe, practice good hygiene, stay studied up in God's Word, eat well, get some exercise, and whatever you do, Give God all the praise and glory and honor that is due His name. Brothers and sisters, I hope to see all of you very soon. God bless you.